Welcome to the Therapy Thoughts Podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe. I'm a clinical mental health counselor and psychology teacher in Utah, and I want to change the mental health game. The Therapy Thoughts Podcast is all about breaking down therapy-related topics and making mental health information easy to understand and super accessible. So join me for quick and direct educational episodes and some deeper dives with experts from around the world. Together, we are going to break down stigma. We're going to help each other make peace with mind, body, and food. We're going to make therapy cool and invest time in our mental health. Let's do it here, one therapy thought at a time. What is up, everybody? This is the Therapy Thoughts Podcast, and today we are diving deep into binge eating disorder. I've wanted to do this for a while because binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder, and it is not talked about quite enough. There's not enough education. So I'm so excited to give you an interview with Jennifer Rowland. Jennifer is an eating disorder therapist. She's the founder of the Eating Disorder Center. She has been interviewed speaking about eating disorders on ABC, NBC, PBS, And she has been named as one of the top eating disorder experts in the country. Uh, Recently, the co-author of her upcoming book was on my podcast, Colleen Reichman and Jennifer Rowland now joins us. So it's exciting to have so many professionals and experts in the field come on the Therapy Thoughts podcast. I hope today you learn a bunch of stuff. Um, I know we had a really great conversation, not just about Y'all, we got a great guest on today, the one and only, the legit Jennifer Rowland. What's up? Not much. What's up with you? <laughs> we, I always talk to the guests before we jump in, and so it's like we have to pretend like we're starting from scratch. Yep. <laughs> we are going to dive into binge eating disorder. I mean, Jennifer, you have a ton of expertise on eating disorders, but when I think of like the binge eating disorder therapist, it's you. Well, thank you. That means a lot. And it's something I'm really passionate about because there's so much stigma, I think, around all eating disorders, but especially for binge eating. So I love getting to talk about it. Awesome. Will you tell folks what like binge eating disorder is? Sure. So binge eating disorder is when we have episodes of binging, which is defined as eating within like a short period of time. So one to two hours more than quote unquote, the average person would eat. It's associated like that binging episode is associated with feeling out of control, feelings of shame and guilt, distress following a binge. And yeah, there's a lot of shame is what I see with clients as well. So yeah, binge eating disorder is basically having these episodes of binge eating that feel very out of control, often shameful. You know, clients will describe it sometimes as I had a client describe it as feeling possessed. So it's not like, oh, yeah, just take a bubble bath instead of binging, right? Like you feel really like you can't stop in that moment. And most of the time, not always, there is some kind of physical and emotional restriction that goes along with the binging. But unfortunately, that is not talked about in the DSM. So there is a physical and emotional restriction associated with it. Often. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that. And then what else might be kind of underlying that binge, right? Like that's what the therapy piece is all about. Like what's a physical restriction that leads to binge look like versus emotional versus other potential 
feeding aspects. Totally. So physical restriction is, I see a brownie in front of me. I really want the brownie, but I've decided that brownies are quote unquote bad. So I'm not going to let myself have it. Or I'm on some kind of diet and it tells me that, you know, sugar is bad, carbs are bad. So I'm avoiding those things. So I'm physically telling myself that I cannot have the thing, which often is going to lead to binge eating. Because when we think about, for instance, let's say like my favorite cereal is at the store and they announce next week this cereal and mine would probably either be Cookie Crisp or Special K. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've gone back to my childhood favorite with Cookie Crisp or Frosted Flakes. <laughs> um, so let's say it was Cookie Crisp and they said, after next week, we're not making it again. What would I naturally do? I'm going to go to the store and buy a ton of boxes of Cookie Crisp, right? Because they're scarcity. So when I tell myself I can't have that brownie, I'm creating this mindset of scarcity where it's like, I need to eat as much as possible if I come upon that. So that sounds like it leads to the emotional restriction piece. Right. So, yeah. So emotional restriction, a lot of times people will come to therapy and say, one, I'm not restricting. Like I eat meals, I eat snacks, which like many people with anorexia also come to me and say, I'm not restricting. I'm eating meals, I'm eating snacks. So just because you're having meals and snacks does not mean you're getting enough for your energy needs, right? Emotional restricting might be, okay, I'm eating enough, but I'm eating all quote unquote clean foods, right? Or I have certain food rules where I only let myself have foods I enjoy on the weekends. So somebody might say to me, I'm not restricting, I'm having meals and snacks, but my meals and snacks, you know, never include something like a brownie or a bag of chips. And it's interesting because if you look at the food that people are binging on, very frequently it is food that they're either physically or emotionally restricting. I'm sure I'm sure you've seen this as well. Folks like aren't restricting physically. They're eating a lot of bound, uh, brownies and they think they have unconditional access, but they have that guilt and shame. I shouldn't eat this. I'll make up for this tomorrow or Monday I'll reset. And isn't that also the emotional restriction piece? A hundred percent because the thought is like that last supper mentality of diet starts Monday. And so that also leads to shame and guilt when the rule is broken. So for instance, if I eat a brownie, I'm like, yum, delicious brownie. I'm at this point in my life, like moving on with my life. But for somebody with binge eating disorder, it's like, crap, I ate a brownie. I've effed up my diet. It starts again Monday. So I might as well eat the whole pan. Yeah, that's tricky. It, it, I don't know if it's always like a, a process, but a lot of folks who are trying to make peace with food are like, finally eat the food, but that emotional piece and those rules linger. And so it's good to call that out to know, like, that's just as impactful of uh, harming your relationship with food and setting up a binge. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that it's sometimes hard for people to feel as motivated to challenge the restriction, especially when they have binge eating, because they're like, they come to therapy saying, my problem is that it's not like other people. My problem is I overeat or I'm addicted to food, or we hear those kind of words, or I eat emotionally, right? And so we actually have to do some psychoeducation that helping you with the restriction, like at times, binging is your body's way of trying to protect itself. It's like a resilient coping strategy, right? And so we have to help them to see that actually restriction in combination with other factors is often underlying the binging behavior. I wish y'all could see this video. I'm just like 
nodding my <laughs> head and like taking notes because you just said a bunch of hot topic words that I know we both spend a lot of time like trying to educate online. But for listeners who don't know, like binging and the word food addiction and emotional eating are like people think there's this like connection, like I'm binging because I'm addicted to food. So let's just go ahead and and fucking set the record straight, Jennifer. <laughs> I'm I'm right there with you. We're totally on the same page. And I think probably we're pretty a lot. We're very aligned uh, pretty much. So I think you and I would both say if a client comes to therapy, they say they're addicted to food. You know, we're not going to be like, no, you're not. Like, that's not a thing, right? Like we meet clients where they are and I have compassion that it might feel like you're addicted to food, right? It might feel that way. However, the reality is that, you know, they've done roundups of all the studies around the research on food addiction and sugar addiction, and it's simply not supported by the research. And one of the arguments is that consuming sugar lights up your brain in certain areas, like reward pathways with dopamine. Well, so does hugging my best friend or playing with my parents' new puppy or holding a baby, right? So just because something is pleasurable does not mean that it is addictive. And I would argue that actually it's the restriction and the dieting that can be the addictive element not the food itself, yeah. but the way that we're engaging with the food. Yes. A hundred percent agree. The research agrees. And I think a lot of the addiction claims are just very anecdotal people feeling out of control around the food. But what you're saying is like, yes, when you are restricted around sugar, your body naturally is going to fiend and want what isn't available, that feast or famine biological drive so the paradox of everything we're saying is access to it removes this this drive and obsession or addictive feeling, right? Totally. Um, and I think that's something I talk about with clients where the first step is getting you renourished because otherwise we're just fighting your biology, like that biological hunger and drive to eat. So if you're severely restricting yourself or even restricting yourself a small amount, your body is trying to help you. Like we can't tell our brains, you only need this much food, like your body knows. So first we want to work to get people renourished, working through food rules. And then we can also in tandem address some of the other factors that can trigger the binging piece. Yeah. I would love uh, to hear your insight on some of those. I mean, we talk a lot in the, the field about restriction being the key. If you're binging, you're restricting, but it is more nuanced than that. There are other factors, right? What else goes into it? Yeah. So there's a lot of nuance. And the last thing I'll say for right now on the restricting piece is that even if you're not actively restricting, if you have a history of food insecurity or, you know, being put on diets when you're younger, that might be playing into this too. So it's important to think about that. The other two big factors that I talk about are this idea of habituation. Mm -hmm. So essentially, as people, we get into habit loops that feel comfortable and familiar. It's basic psychology, right? Like classical conditioning and operant conditioning. Like we associate things with certain things the same way that, you know, I might be driving somewhere and not even notice that I drove to that place. I don't know if that's happened to you where you're like driving to work or driving your kid to school and you're like, suddenly I'm here, but I don't, I didn't cognitively have to think through the steps, mm -hmm. right? That's automatic wiring in your brain, like where it's been wired, this is the path I take to work. And so over time, binging can become an automatic wired behavior where often it might start with either I'm really physically hungry or deprived, right? 
or, or both, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling lonely. And what do I do? I don't want to sit with that emotion, right? So, or I'm physically very hungry. And so I turn to binging. So that can become like a wired habitual pattern over time where clients might come to me and say, I'm binging every day. There's no trigger. Like it's just happening. And the last factor that is a big one is emotions. So pretty much everyone I work with with an eating disorder struggles with emotions on some level, like healthy identification and processing. And food is soothing and it's comforting. And that's one way that people can turn like to something to try to cope and feel better. This ties back to the the other hot word in media of emotional eating. And I actually recorded a reel today on this because our our society unfairly criticizes emotional eating. 100%. I can't wait to see your reel, by the way. Like I know what I'm doing, y'all. It's just like <laughs> one more thing. But the idea of like this plays into binge eating because it's more restriction. Like don't eat emotionally, but we're not effing cars who run simply on fuel. Like PSA, you're allowed to eat for emotional reasons, including celebration and tradition and memory and fun. And like, it's Friday night. Like that's, and I, I would say that allowing yourself that and removing the shame is part of the paradox. Then you don't have to emotionally eat because you're allowed to, but I'm going to shut up because you're the expert. So tell us. <laughs> no, you're an expert. You're an expert too. And we're 100% on the same page. I did an Instagram post about how about we stop demonizing emotional eating last week. Um, and I heard somebody, I forget who it was, say that eating only for fuel is like having sex only for procreation. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, they win. <laughs> yeah. I think ultimately, like you said, I mean, there's so much tied to food and like, you know, you said it perfectly. We're not robots. We're not machines. We celebrate around food. There's cultural traditions around food. And I don't think we need to shame ourselves. I truly think it comes from fat phobia is the root of it, honestly. You know, if I'm sad and I consciously choose to eat a cupcake, I fully support that. And I think that's a self-care choice. It's about having the choice and about having a toolbox of coping skills that we can use so that food is not our only coping skill. That's the quote of the podcast right there. <laughs> exactly. We're not, it's funny by giving this permission, I think there's this overcompensation of fear. Like, well, then you're just going to eat with every emotion. That's not what we're, I yeah. mean, we're therapists. We're here to like teach people how to deal with feelings. Right. So of course, that's not what we're saying, but we're saying in addition to eating as a comfort, what else is going to actually help you deal with these emotions as well? And like you said, you got to have a toolbox and learn that stuff. Totally. And like we hope over time we can help people be more conscious with making that decision. It's that mindfulness piece of not that you have to be perfectly a mindful eater because that's another trap, mm -hmm. but you know, I can consciously choose. I'm feeling kind of sad today. You know what? Going to get ice cream in a cone outside when it's not freezing like it is right now, you know, is a pick me up. And I think that's okay because I have other things that I can do too, where I'm not reliant on ice cream to cope with my feelings. Yeah. And me and you are both open about being clinicians who've dealt with eating disorders. We talk about recovery and I just want to give folks permission to like be where you're at, but also to eat this way. Like I will emotionally eat. I did the night of the election and I was like, I'm eating brownies. 
it's okay to re to do this. I have other coping skills. Yes, I could ground. Yes, I could distract. Yes, I could blah, blah, blah. But I want to eat because that feels the most soothing. And so it's it's all a part of this. And if you're recovered, if you're struggling, it doesn't matter where you are. Like you're just allowed to freaking eat if you're feeling the feels. And there's more you can do as well. That's not all I've done to deal with the election, but just normalizing. Yeah, 100%, because it's the shame that then keeps people restricting and compensating, which then turns them back to binging. So shame is part of the cycle of binging and binge eating disorder. What else can you say about that? I think in our society, eating disorders like anorexia are more egocentric, which basically means that people with eating disorders, and it's not to say that like people with anorexia are always praised, right? They can also get comments on looking too thin and there is shame and stigma around that too. But I think our society glorifies eating as little as possible. Like looking at all these celebrities recently who've starved themselves and are now being congratulated and being thin. And the worst nightmare in our very fat phobic society is eating as much as possible, being quote unquote out of control. Those people are seen at times as like, quote unquote, lazy or, you know, indulgent, like it's seen as something that's a negative. Um, so I think the shame is what's wrong with me? Why can't I control myself? Why can't I just be normal about, around food? Why am I thinking about it 24 seven? And for people whose eating disorders cause weight gain, there's a crap ton of shame associated with that in our culture. So a lot of people with binge eating at times are very secretive, not binging in front of other people, their partner might not even know about it. There's just so much shame, I think, wrapped up in it. I think you you just busted a myth about, you know, people who gain weight with their eating disorder. I think it's really important to highlight that, that that's, there is no size of a body that has an eating disorder, right? And binge eating disorder, anorexia, orthorexia, bulimia, they don't look a certain way, right? Yeah, I think that's so important to share all the time that... You know, I have clients in larger bodies who have restrictive eating disorders and I've had clients in smaller bodies who binge and like, and vice versa. You know, you just can't look at somebody and know A, if they have an eating disorder or B, what their diagnosis is. What would uh, folks who are listening who are like, wait, is this something I'm dealing with? Or do I know a loved one dealing with this? Is it helpful to differentiate binging versus binge eating disorder as defined by the DSM? Sure. I mean, to be honest, like DSM talks about frequency, but I think that when it comes to binge eating, I think it's important to say that it's all serious and that even people struggling with disordered eating should be encouraged to reach out for help. Because when I'm evaluating someone in my office, like, yes, I give DSM diagnoses. And I think we need to point out that like, if you're binging at all, like you are sick enough. And if you're struggling with a difficult relationship with food, you are sick enough. Amen. And I I think a lot of us kind of in the progressive eating disorder space are kind of like F the DSM. I feel 100% <laughs> the same way. Like I'm tiptoeing here, but I'm like, right, like it is missing so many facts and it's fat phobic and still perpetuating weird stuff and missing the mark. Exactly. I love how you said, like, if you're binging at all, like you're sick enough, like anything on this spectrum, if you're struggling with your relationship with food, like that's serious. And you don't have to have this arbitrary cutoff 
of like yeah. frequency or duration to qualify for needing help. I mean, gosh, it's causing harm. Yeah, we're on the exact same page about the DNA. Once again, same page. I love it. <laughs> So, I mean, okay, cool. So we don't even really need to differentiate binging from binge eating disorder because it's like, look, either way you deserve help and you don't have to have this label to qualify. Right. And again, I think when we're talking about like differentiating it to binge eating disorder, like, yeah, we can look specifically at the DSM and frequency and cutoffs, but I find it more useful to look at um, level of impairment in that person's life. And so that's really how I would delineate it instead of more arbitrarily like once a month versus once a week. It's the level of distress and impairment yes. in functioning that I think makes it because there are two truths, right? I want to identify that, yes, it's important that people get diagnosed and that, you know, having a full-fledged eating disorder is different from disordered eating as someone who has had both and both are serious, but really it's level of impairment, I would say. Yeah, for sure. And we all know, I mean, getting a, a diagnosis is like a privilege. Can you afford to go to a freaking counselor? And like insurance is going to require that. So yes, they're different and they both matter. And dude, Jennifer, you're like teaching abnormal psych here beautifully. Like I agree. How, what matters is, is this impairing your functioning and what is your personal distress level like? And that's, that's up to you. You're the expert on that, right? Right. And that's actually a really important distinction. Like if we are going to use the piece from the DSM is they talk about a binge eating episode following like one of, they have a bunch of different criteria. You don't have to meet every one, but one talks about shame and guilt. And if we think about, for instance, something more normalized, let's say Thanksgiving dinner, people eat until they feel totally stuffed, which again, could qualify as a larger amount than the average person would eat, but it depends on the person, Right. But many people I know without eating disorders do not feel shame around eating a big meal or maybe getting really overstuffed, you know, at a restaurant. The difference is feeling out of control because you're controlled by a mental illness and for some like biological hunger and the shame and the guilt that that person feels after. That's, that's so helpful because that's something people can monitor. What's the level of distress and shame? something's wrong with me. Like, and you gave us some good examples of what that would sound like. And I, I love that you brought up Thanksgiving because it's, it is this like culturally accepted more of a binge holiday. And it's interesting, just the relationship we have with food in this country and what's okay, what's not okay. And making holidays around food, but there's shame there. Like, it's just so complicated. Totally. And I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but that's why I really like, I think it's Ellen Satter's definition of like normal eating and saying that sometimes normal eating is like, you know, leaving a meal and not feeling satisfied and wanting something else. And sometimes it's feeling overstuffed and uncomfortable. Like all of that is part of the normal eating experience. And it's been really freeing for me as someone who's recovered to be able to like go out to eat somewhere like pre-quarantine. This feels like ages ago, but I remember Mark and I went to the melting pot for Valentine's day and the food was so freaking good. I don't know if you've been to the fondue places. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, I'm making the conscious choice. I'm full, but like there is a third course and it is chocolate where you could like dip things in it, chocolate fondue. And it was delicious, you know, and I left overstuffed and uncomfortable, but I made that choice because this is like something we don't do a lot. And the food was so delicious. I was like, I'm going to make that choice. 
you know? Um, so to me, that's so freeing that I'm able to choose and that if you do feel a little bit uncomfortable, uncomfortably full at a meal, that I know that it'll pass and it doesn't cause me to go into the shame spiral and fear of weight gain. Mm. That's beautiful. That's freedom. Totally. It's, it's a constant hope. I know we both want to reinforce that there's that possibility for recovery and that you can have a cool relationship with food. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think speaking for myself, when I was in it, I didn't really see a way out. And so that's why I think it's so important that you and I are both open about being recovered in our past histories with eating disorders too. Yeah. Um, you said something early on in the podcast. I want to kind of circle back to, we were talking about like binge episodes and you said like, just stop of how people can't just stop. It's almost like this, they black out or are possessed. Um, and that made me think of what's helpful and not helpful to say or do for folks struggling with binge eating and saying, just stop. I can't think of one mental illness where that's helpful particularly with eating disorders or whatever. <laughs> what other like good insights do you have of what's helpful to say or do or not helpful to say or do? Other things that are unhelpful are, and these are all things that happen, as I'm sure you know, locking, if you have a, an adolescent or a child who's binging, locking the fridge, that's only going to create more scarcity and mistrust. Telling I think it's so hard because there's no like manual for parents, right? And they often want to help. And when someone binges, it's like, should I not keep the food in the house? Like trying to restrict and limit their child. And I think that there are other ways that are a lot more healing than perpetuating that restriction and, and mistrust with food. So I think that's something to think about and to make sure it's something you're doing if you're an adult as well, right? Um, there's a strategy called stalking. I think it's Judith Maltz who talks about it, where we look at someone's readiness, right? It's tailored, treatment's tailored to each person. But, you know, I've had clients, for instance, who binge on tortilla chips. And so they never keep them in the house or they do, and the bag is gone in a second. And so we work on maybe, you know, when they feel ready, having bags and bags of tortilla chips and telling themselves, I have unconditional permission to eat the tortilla chips. When I run out, I'll restock it. Um, and so that's something that can actually be quite helpful over time um, is just one approach that we can use, but off topic. So back to things that are helpful and unhelpful. Um, I think body-based comments, wildly unhelpful. Um, asking someone if they gained or lost weight is only going to trigger that eating disorder voice. Any judgmental food comments or really comments at all around food in the heat of the moment can be really triggering. So not saying, oh, you did so well at lunch today or... Like, look at you resisting that brownie. Like, none of that is going to be helpful at all. I think helpful things are reading books like Intuitive Eating, Body Respect. You know, if you have a family member with an eating disorder, demonstrating, like, that unconditional idea of, like, all foods fitting into your diet. And so modeling, you know, yourself eating foods that might feel scary to the individual in recovery. I think also saying, like, I'm here to support you anytime you want to talk about it. There's no like shame or judgment. So just being open and compassionate and letting the person know, like, again, I think the biggest thing with binge eating is that it's not your fault. It's a mental illness. I love you. Like I'm here to support you and I'm not going to judge you. And also as that person is more nourished, 
help, you know, if they've been restricting, helping them to use some of their coping strategies only if they ask and want your support to help them to surf some of their urges around binging behaviors. You, everything you said may feel paradoxical to people. <laughs> but isn't that why like we went into counseling? Cause that's often what we deal with. None of this is restrictive stocking food, having unconditional access, do not lock food up. Don't make comments about size to shame people like reading books, allowing food. All of this is probably counterintuitive and that's why it works. It's this paradox. You have to have access and remove that shame. And I just want to double down on what you said hundred percent. I've seen that in my practice as well. And sometimes just, simply being like, go buy all the Cadbury eggs you want, like start with that or Girl Scout cookies, like have access. And it's amazing what ripple effect that takes. Right. Like with the Girl Scout cookies, I had a client who binged on Girl Scout cookies and was like, I just am ha- not able to have them. And so as she was further in her recovery, where she felt comfortable challenging that we had her sit down. I'm like, you can have as many Girl Scout cookies as you want, but I want you to practice having them mindfully sitting down, enjoying them, like smelling them. Right. And she was like, oh my gosh, like I, all week, like I had them like a few nights and then I was like, I'm bored of this. I want something else. And she's like, it didn't have that power over me. Right. When she finally had that permission just to sit down and have it, which unfortunately like past therapists and nutritionists were not giving her that permission due to judgment around her body size. Yeah. For anyone listening, dealing with this, any professional listening, dealing with this, um, Jennifer's giving you some treatment nuggets, honestly. Like this is good therapy, permission to binge, permission to eat, permission to try these foods. And then you mentioned mindfulness of it. We're not saying don't eat it and we're not treating it like a diet. We're saying pay attention, smell, taste, touch, enjoy, connect. And then you said urge surfing, which is a brilliant CBT skill to use with any eating disorder or any strong urge. Do you want to break down what that kind of means for folks? Sure. So I'd be interested to hear if we have different definitions of it, but how I kind of use it is this idea of a wave, right? Like at the beach and thinking about how an urge is similar to a wave where it's going to start and then it's going to come up really high in intensity. And then eventually just like every wave in the ocean, it's going to crash back down. So what can happen is the urge can rise. It can get to a crest and peak, And then somebody uses the eating disorder behavior to bring them back to their baseline where they get caught in this loop where my urge rises, I binge, binge and purge, and then I come back down to baseline. So I learn that that calms me down, regulates me, right? What we're helping people to do is recognize that most, pretty much every urge is eventually going to pass, right? And come down in intensity if we can sit with it without using the behavior when it peaks, And so how I teach urge surfing is helping people have cope ahead plans, things that they can do in the moment when the urge is very high, which honestly, ideally will involve other people at some point, because sometimes our eating disorder voice is just so loud, we need that external support. Um, And that way we can learn that like everything, urges, emotions, they all rise and peak and naturally fall without us having to kind of try to change them or fight against them. Yeah, 100%. Same analogy. Um, and I, I'm a big fan of feeling feelings. I think my eating disorder was just a numbing control obsession and I didn't know how to feel. And so when you're at the top of that wave and you're so damn scared, just don't jump off the surfboard. 
you write it out, you feel that feeling, it's bumpy, it's shaky, but we all have that ability within us to build interoceptive awareness of what sensations are, to trust our emotions, to listen to them and to cope using, there's hundreds of coping skills we can use, whether we're distracting or sitting with the feeling or reaching out for support. Um, and to me, that's that's the fight. That's recovery every day is choosing in those strong urges to surf it out, to keep going, to use something to help you navigate. So you're you're sharing some really powerful skills that I see help people all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to add, I was like the poster child for any of my past therapists will tell you for wanting to numb out difficult emotions. Um, and I think that's something so many people with eating disorders struggle with. But I would say in my life, I went through, you know, every many different unhelpful coping strategies, whether it was, you know, using a wide variety of eating disorder behaviors, self-harming, substance use, like I wanted to do whatever possible to escape and jump away from that emotion. And I think through recovery, I learned that actually everything I was doing was only prolonging the emotion, adding these other painful things that were really difficult to stop and took over control of my life. And now the difference is I can feel a really difficult emotion. It doesn't feel good, but I can cry it out. I can reach out to my friends for support. And eventually I'm like, oh, that passed. Like not even as relatively quickly compared to when I used to try to jump off the surfboard. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Like emotion never stops. Like we're still in this ocean, but you learn to surf. Right. I mean, there's certain waves I'm really not trying to surf, let's be honest, but we we can do hard things. I think we're all on a 2020 wave right now, right? Jeez. <laughs> totally. Gosh, we're getting so much good information about binge eating here. You had mentioned earlier, like, oh, people have this stigma around binge eating disorder, like you're lazy or da, 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 da. What other myths would you say are around this? I think that there's a myth, and I've heard this from eating disorder therapists themselves in the past, that anybody in a larger body has binge eating disorder or a problematic relationship to food, and that anybody with binge eating disorder is in a larger body. And in my clinical practice, that has not at all been the case. I mean, there are plenty of people in larger bodies who are perfectly fine in their relationship to food. And there are plenty of people in smaller bodies who struggle with binge eating where you would have, again, like any eating disorder, many of the most of the time, like you could look at this person and not know. So I think that's another myth is like body size is correlated and people in larger bodies all struggle with binging and that people in larger bodies don't struggle with restriction. Yeah. Also the laziness and willpower element of like, that's a big one of somebody who binges is just lacking willpower and they just need to go on another diet. Mm. Um, or cut out sugar. It's a huge one with like Food Addicts Anonymous. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's very much this idea of like you're a sugar addict and you have to cut out like five different kinds of foods in order to heal. So that's wildly problematic. I think we could probably, we're probably both on the same page here to make another sweeping statement that we are not going to recommend Overeaters Anonymous, Food Addicts Anonymous, that that's, that's not, uh, it's going to be contraindicated for your binging and your relationship with food. Absolutely. And I've seen so many clients who've been there for many years and then come to see me because it's not helping. And if anything, it's just making things worse. 
because it reinforces the problem. It reinforces that the food is the problem, whereas the problem is often restriction, inability to cope with emotions, habitual loops, um, and judgment and shame around the food, which is what it literally sells to you. Yeah. Gosh, the, the culture is really loud. And the the myths around binge eating just speak to the widespread fat phobia and fear we have. And I didn't hear the word body diversity until I was on Instagram. Like I've learned more about eating disorders on Instagram from other professionals and social justice advocates than I ever did in like my studies or research or textbooks because they're behind the times. But like those myths and the that stigma is really rooted in that injustice and these these judgments we have about folks or assumptions that people in bigger bodies automatically have like a disordered relationship with food is deeply problematic. And we need to look at that within ourselves, I think, to uproot that as a culture. Each individual has to say like, wow, I am fat phobic. This is the culture we're right. in. Absolutely. And if you just think about other cultural phenomenons, there's you know, there was a whole hashtag, I think it was like women eating carbs or something. And there's a lot of like trends or like it's seen as super cute if a very thin person eats a whole bunch of food in a big set, like in one sitting. But if a fat person does that, then they're disgusting, they're unhealthy, they're out of control. So I really think that the reason why binging is so judged in our society is because it's associated with weight gain and our society is inherently fat phobic, which is rooted in racism, you know, as well as patriarchy and some of these other systems of oppression, which is again, why emotional eating is demonized too. It is all tied in my opinion to these systems of oppression Mm -hmm. and fear of weight gain. Mm -hmm. I've, I just did a presentation, um, for the Mormon Mental Health Association, and I was talking about the crossover of, uh, you know, social justice and diet culture, and was highlighting like how it has roots in racism, and it's blowing my mind. Like this is completely new to me. I'm only discovering this now, and I've been an eating disorder therapist for ten years, so I'm a bit ashamed to admit that, but also willing to admit that to say like we have so much to learn, and when we have so much privilege, I'm thin and white and cisgendered and female like i i have all these levels of privilege that we don't know till we know but i am i mean i'm finding out so much about the problems of diet culture that go way beyond keto or weight watchers it's deeply ingrained like you said yeah and i think it's good to normalize that i think my journey of unlearning the things that i've been taught through society um is going to be ongoing right like anti racism work, anti-racist work is ongoing. Um, I'm learning fat phobia. And it's not to say like, you know, I identify as recovered, you're recovered, but just this idea of that when you hold certain privileges in society and you grow up in a society that is based on some of these systems of oppression, I think we have to normalize that that can be an ongoing learning process and that that's okay. Yeah. Cause it is. And if we're in denial of that, we're probably not doing the work. We got to work on our ego strength there. There's a lot to do. Yep. Um, yeah. I hope these myths get you all fired up of thinking about, you know, how problematic it is and harmful it is to make assumptions about people because of body size and we have to wake up to body diversity. Um, what else have we not said? Oh, we didn't talk about how this is the the most common eating disorder and how we didn't even really talk about it until recently, right? Yeah, it was only added to the DSM, which is what we use to diagnose people with. 
um, I believe in 2013, which is wild because it is, like you said, the most common eating disorder. And prior to that, anorexia and bulimia were the only really recognized eating disorders. They, I, in my opinion, they should also have orthorexia in the DSM because that's a huge problem. And so it just speaks again to the stigma that there was this large group of people and it was just not talked about. And I really do think that's because of the societal values around it and because anorexia is at times glamorized in the media or seen as something fascinating, whereas binge eating is seen as something shameful and less talked about. And I think it's gotten a lot better, but it's still a big problem. Most common eating disorder. We, I don't think that's known. Um, So hopefully that normalizes the struggle. Y'all aren't broken. If you're dealing with this mental illness is like physical illness. You're not choosing it. It's, it's a disease, not a decision. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I don't think I needed this to have that empathy, but I think having had an eating disorder, and like I said, having struggled with multiple different kinds of eating disorder behaviors, like I can personally firsthand attest that it was in no way a choice. You know, I think eating disorders are very miserable and I don't think anybody would make that choice of saying, Hey, like sign me up to think about food 24 seven or to feel totally possessed in the kitchen cabinet after I told myself I wouldn't do this again. Um, So I think, I think the general population often doesn't recognize that, that it really is not a choice. Yeah. Really misunderstood. That's why we need mental health education because we're really ignorant when it comes to mental health and just shove it down and don't talk about it. And when you talk about patriarchy and how like suppression of emotion is part of the stigma, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's. Yeah. And why do we think there's such a high suicide rate? And in the pandemic, I've heard it's increasing because not only do people feel terrible with their mental health cut off from social connections, which is really important to well-being, They also feel a lot of shame and stigma of talking about it. I think especially for men or for people of all genders, really, there's a lot of shame around crying in front of people. I mean, so many clients will apologize for crying, right? And I mean, even non-clients, right? People in my life will apologize for crying. And that is still seen for some people as a sign of being weak or being too much or a mess. And so even the most basic like human expression of emotion is seen as shameful or I need to apologize for it. It's so hard for people to speak about mental health. Oh, that's, that stigma is so deep. Let me let me be crystal clear, y'all. Crying is a coping skill, and it is an effective coping skill. That literal energy leaving your body and that release of stress hormones. I mean, crying alone got me through so many urges and has helped me process grief and trauma. All of us, we need to cry. It's it's necessary. Yeah. I 100% agree. And I think all of this suppression, the last thing I'll say about the emotions piece is the analogy I give is like trying to suppress our feelings is like being in the pool and you have a beach ball and you're trying to hold it underwater. And eventually you can do it for a while, but your arms get really freaking tired. And what happens when you let go, if anyone's done this, it flies above the water with force versus if you let your emotions out gradually, like as they come, they're going to pass more quickly than if you've been bottling them up for two weeks and then suddenly you explode. Mm. I love it. You're a good therapist. Well, you're a good therapist too. <laughs> so that means a lot. I'm so grateful you're like in this game. Yeah. I mean, I'm grateful you are too. And I think the messages you put out and like normalizing being a therapist, talking about mental health and 
you know, your own struggles and history, I think is so like refreshing and important. You're right there with me doing it. And it's, gosh, we got to change this game. The way we are trained. It's yeah. Incredibly problematic. I, people wouldn't recognize the person I was when I came out of school to now, because anyone who's followed my journey will tell you it was such a gradual process of like, when I first graduated, I must be perfect. Mm -hmm. I must be perfect. Mm -hmm. I've never been to therapy. I've never, I'm not going to talk about having had an eating disorder or trauma. Like everything is great and I'm perfect. Mm -hmm. And now I think I get to live in my authenticity and say, like, let me normalize that. Like I've had these struggles. I've been in a crap ton of therapy and I probably would not be here today or be here doing as well as I'm doing without it and without medication, which I still take. So I think we need to normalize that. We really do. And for therapists and healers, I love seeing them as clients. And I love letting go of like the shame and stigma that like, oh, you're a therapist. Like you can't struggle with anxiety or depression or an eating disorder. And I think that's complete crap. Like why are we putting mental health therapists on this pedestal where they're not supposed to be human and they're not supposed to deal with anything? So um, it really irritates me quite a bit in therapist groups where people are casting shame and judgment, which is why I've been on that tirade lately. And so I just want to say, like, if you're a helping professional struggling with your mental health, like there's absolutely no shame in that. And there's no shame in getting support for that. I'm getting fired up, y'all. I'm about to go off. I'm ready for you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like getting red. I'm angry because anger is stronger than shame. And it's like, maybe I just have enough, like, audacity and balls to just be like look i know i'm dope like i know i'm really smart and extremely capable and like i would go up against anyone and i just doubled my anxiety meds and i go to therapy with a couples therapist and an individual therapist and that's what makes me a dope therapist is because i do this work i'm not a robot and i i do not trust therapists who don't go to therapy I, yeah, first off, like, seriously, like, kudos to you for saying that because you're helping people to let go of the shame and be like, yeah, like, I can try medication or I can take medication because I don't know about you, but I avoided my therapist in college was like, have you thought about like an anti anxiety (laughs) medicine? I was like, yeah, it's for like, you know, crazy people. I'm not doing that for like five years until finally I was like, all right, like, had like five different initial appointments, went to just one, and then finally I was like, all right. And it completely helped me so, so much. Like it didn't get rid of the anxiety, but it enabled me to use tools in therapy. Um, and I still take it today, you know, and I, I think it's beneficial. So I go to therapy. I probably will forever because I love it and I love working on myself. And I don't think these should be things that we're ashamed of saying the same way if I had diabetes and I had to take insulin for it, you know? Yes. When is this culture going to wake up like this expectation that therapists should should not have mental health is still just based on this stigma that it's a choice or a sign of weakness. That's the only reason this exists. We don't expect doctors not to get sick or not have surgery or not have arthritis. Like like you said, I would never pick an eating disorder that was straight up suffering. And I would not pick anxiety. Anxiety freaking sucks. And I know I'm Miss Feel, Deal, Heal, but I'm not trying to feel anxiety. Like, I don't like it. It's it's ignorant. It's the stigma. It's the shame. And, dude, people – sorry. Jennifer, you are changing this game by being open. You talk about trauma, recovery, your meds, and I just respect the hell out of you. Like, thank you personally from me 
my clients, like your followers, like your work is changing this culture. It's making a difference. Yeah. Yours is a hundred percent as well. And I could not agree more. And that's the last thing I'll say, because I'm sure we could tirade about this forever, but <laughs> it pisses me off so much because I'm in, I don't think that you're in them. I, I don't know, actually, but I haven't seen you comment. I'm in some Facebook groups with therapists where therapists have reached out about struggling. And the first comment and multiple comments is consult your ethics board. You should stop seeing clients. It's like, and I'm again, not to get to that whole discussion because I think that's nuanced and not all or nothing. But I think when a provider says they're struggling, we need to meet them with compassion and give them support. That's what we need to do is our first thing. And I think, like you said, all of the judgment, it totally comes from stigma. And we can't be a good healer or therapist if we're judging and stigmatizing people with mental illness while trying to treat people with mental illness. It's just not right. Y'all need to wake up. It is 2020. There is no time. Ain't nobody got time for stigma. Like we have real issues to face. Like seriously, therapists shouldn't go to therapy. Like whatever, dude, we, <laughs> I don't, I wish people could see your hand moving right now. You're <laughs> I need to get grounded. I'm a little hyper aroused. I'm a little dysregulated. I'm angry. It's fine. I can feel this. <laughs> okay. So that's cool. That's a cool turn. A little uh, stigma therapy rant. That's always good. Always good. Um, before we wrap up, tell us, like, you wrote a book. Yeah. Um, so the inside scoop on eating disorder recovery is my book with my badass best friend, Dr. Colleen Reichman. And it's coming out March 2021. So you should be able to order it, pre-order on Amazon or on Route Ledge's website, but you can just follow my Instagram and I'll be spamming about it, I'm sure, when it comes out. I mean, no big deal. You wrote a book and I loved it. I got a pre-order um, or a early access and it is the book we need in this field. That means a lot. And honestly, like people say it's the worst process writing a book and it was hard, but I think writing it with Colleen made it actually very enjoyable mm, so cool. recommend if you do write a book which I'm sure you will writing it with a friend mm, I love that this I like this book a lot because many I mean our our generation of therapists is pretty unique and progressive in the eating disorder space and I think a lot of the old school pioneers haven't haven't studied social justice, aren't really checking their privilege. And I think you cannot be in this field if you're not doing that at this point. Like this isn't just about thin white women or aesthetics. This is a systemic issue rooted in oppression. And y'all talk about that in this book and are very openly calling out your own privileges and you're disclosing about your own battles. And I just drink it up. I think we need this. People who are struggling need this. Anyone who wants to fight diet culture, talk, you know, read stories of these relatable therapists who know their stuff. Y'all are experts. I mean, I loved your book. I hope everyone here reads it. I, I mean, it's really good. Thank you. That means a lot. And I so appreciated you reading the early copy because it's always a little nerve wracking when you put your book that includes more aspects of your story than you've shared publicly, you know, out into the world, but 
it means a lot like when colleagues like you are willing to read it and give us your thoughts you're walking the walk you're being vulnerable you're being you're disclosing feminist theory we know that that's important like you're doing it so i'm i'm here for it i'm supporting y'all um colleen was on the podcast a few weeks ago and i'm just really grateful to be able to learn from y'all and thanks again for taking the time to be on the podcast today and chat with us Thank you for having me. It was super fun. Um, I forget to ask everyone this question, but I'm supposed to ask you if you could get a face tattoo, one face tattoo, what would it be? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, hmm, If I could get a face tattoo and it's not an option to not get one, right? Okay. (laughs) It's not on my face. All right. So if I were going to get a, (laughs) if I were going to get a face tattoo, I mean, it'd probably be some kind of inspirational quote. I would have to think about, what kind of quote, but while I think about that, what would your face, would it be feel deal heal or what would be I have like tattoo? 50 face tattoos. And I said, <laughs> don't be able to hold yourself like right here on my forehead, feel deal heal. Therapy is cool. Maybe a little taco under my eye or who knows. <laughs> Maybe like recovery is worth it on my forehead. Okay. We could do okay. that. Very you don't want but... butthole on your face. You don't want that word. Not really. <laughs> Somehow I think that might be off. <laughs> Maybe I need to sell out of my don't be a butthole to yourself t-shirt inventory before I tattoo it on my face. Maybe that's the first goal. There you go. Buy, buy the shirt. Go. It's only $5.99. I bought way too many. <laughs> <laughs> I love that thing though. That's super cute. Uh, okay. Um, where can people find you? So they can either reach out on my website, which is just www.theeatingdisordercenter.com or follow along on Instagram at Jennifer underscore Roland, R as in rock, O-L-L-I-N. Y'all don't want to miss this. She's going, she's going places. Catch her book, follow her on the gram, check out the website and share this podcast with anyone that you think would love to learn more about binging and fighting stigma. May y'all be well. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Therapy Thoughts podcast. But remember, this podcast is not therapy. This is for general informational purposes only. The information on this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, illness, or disease. This also isn't intended to be financial, legal, medical, or therapeutic advice. Make sure you're always working with your own personal, licensed mental health counselor. May you be well. I appreciate you tuning in and supporting the Therapy Thoughts podcast. If you want to dive deeper into intuitive eating and body image and self-love, head over to tiffanyrow.com. It's the hub of all of my courses, the podcast, my merch, and information about doing counseling and coaching with me. I hope you guys stick around for more. We have lots of exciting interviews and thought leaders coming onto the podcast. So until next time, may you be well.